it's Fern here, popping in quickly before the show because I really want to hear from you. I'm forever grateful to you every single time you press play on an episode of Happy Place. And this show really is for you. So in the interest of doing more stuff that you love and less of the stuff you're not bothered by, I would love it if you took a couple of minutes to fill out a little survey for me. The link will be in the show notes. Your input on the content and the format and the guests and all those types of things is so important to help me and the Happy Place team shape the future of Happy Place. So just click on the link in the show notes to share all your thoughts and musings. I appreciate you loads. Hello, I'm Fern Cotton and this is Happy Place, the show that looks for the positive things we can learn from difficult situations. Today I'm talking to a man whose voice you're likely to be very familiar with. It's Christian O'Connell. Once I started to understand a bit more about what was going on with the panic attacks, I found it very hard because the therapist said to me, you need to make a friend with them. And I was like, what? I, I need you to get rid of them. I want it to go away. I want it to stop happening. He said, but it's in you. If you could show me where it was in you, I'd be the richest man in the world. I'll cut it out. He said, when you make a friend of it, that's when you'll get to a better place. Christian won a record-breaking number of awards as a breakfast radio presenter here in the UK. His show was so incredibly successful and it wasn't showing any signs of slowing down. But in 2018, he and his family moved to Australia and he in many ways had to start his career from scratch. He's written a book that now, a couple of years down the line, explains why he made that huge decision to uproot his life. As you'll hear, he felt it was time to make his mental health and happiness a priority. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Okay, should we do it? Here's the show. Hi, Christian. Hello, Fern. Thank you for getting me on. Thank you for letting me come on. Uh, well, it's lovely to have you on. And good evening, because what time is it in Australia right now? 10.30 at night? It's about... 9.30 at night? No, it's um, about 8.30. Just gone 8.30 in the evening. I said that like a real DJ, didn't I? It's just gone. <laughs> I can't go... <laughs> I've been doing breakfast radio for so long. I can get to the time like a normal human. It's a little after eight thirty here. It soothes me <laughs> to hear that radio cadence. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing. So look, we've got so much to talk about because I've been catching up with your life via your brilliant new book, which I loved reading. It's Thank so you, funny, but deeply honest as well. And mm. there's so many things that I want to get onto. So so for anyone that's sort of missed what's been going on in your life, you've been living in Australia for, is it three years now? Yeah, just over three years. Yeah. And obviously, as you know, I've been in breakfast radio in the UK for over 20 years. And uh, about eight years ago, I had really bad panic attacks. And 
I got help, which was the best thing to do whenever we're in something like that. But I found it really hard even just getting the help. And I wrote a book about moving here to Australia. And I was only going to write the book if I talked about the panic attacks. And I found that really hard because it was like I'd never... I hadn't even told my mum and dad until four weeks ago when the book came out in England and Australia. Well, oh, I'm spoiling that in that book, the first couple of chapters about the what I, what I can call now as as as, as a kind of breakdown, really. And at the time, it was scary, it was terrifying. But I can look back now, Fern, and say that was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. It didn't feel like that at the time. Um, and so I I I only wanted to tell my story if I was really honest, because people were always like, "Why did you walk out?" on a show that had 3 million listeners. Why did you leave and go to Australia? And my wife and I were in our mid forties, you know, second half of your life is about supposedly about hanging on to those certainties, everything you've worked hard for. We had the nice house out in Surrey, you know, I had a kitchen island, nice holidays. <laughs> and the kids were all growing up in an area which was a great place for kids to grow up in. And what, what, what happened was that suddenly I woke up in my life and sometimes it takes a kind of rude awakening, whatever that is, a breakdown, a depression, anxiety, losing your job, something like that, that actually makes you wake up in your life. And I think I'd been kind of sleepwalking through the middle of my 40s a bit. And that's when my wife and I started talking really honestly about what was going on behind the panic attacks. And moving to Australia is not my idea of... I don't recommend it to anyone. It's a very it's a very extreme response to panic attacks to go and put yourself into a more extreme situation. Basically starting again where it was even more yeah. um, competitive over here. Breakfast Radio here is really, really big. But actually, if I, when people say, why did you move to Australia? I just said, oh, midlife crisis, that kind of thing, because it was an easier answer. But the real answer was actually it came from having the breakdown and the panic attacks. And I thought it was about two years ago, um, I was talking to one of my daughters who was starting to really struggle at school. And I was finding it hard to connect with her because the dad I'd been up until then had been the funny dad, the dad to always give her a tickle, either physically or just kind of like make a joke. And then she's okay and we're okay and I'm okay. Suddenly that that type of dad, she didn't want that. She wanted a dad would just sit and listen. And and I was trying to give her that speech that all parents, which is true, to say that vulnerability is a great thing it's a, it's a it's a superpower she just looked at me like teenage girls do and go what do you know about it and that would have been the moment for me to say actually i do know a bit about that i've never really talked to mum and dad no one even knows other than your mum that i had a breakdown i had panic attacks you were too young to know and i didn't say anything i kept quiet I, I i leant back into the shadows and i thought why didn't i what they need most of all for me right now is to show that, yeah, your dad, I don't know what it's like to be you, but I know what it's like to struggle, really, really struggle, and thought that I was losing my mind and losing my identity I built up as a successful DJ. And if I'm not that, who am I as a husband and a provider and all of that stuff that men falsely, but we really build up over the years. We think it will give us safety, and it didn't for me. It actually kept me small and disconnected from, I think, myself and also, you know, my family and my friends. And so I thought... Do you know what? If I'm going to write the story, then I will. I'll tell the truth. It's not the whole story, as you know. You've read it, but it's 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 the most important bit of it for me, and it's the bit that most people. Without that, it's a collection of just funny little stories, and I didn't want to do that. That you don't. There's nothing connective about that. I think I wrote it to begin with, thinking it was a kind of me getting it out there, a conversation I'd had. I think internally for a couple of years, and I think all of us, if we're honest, there's always a story that we don't want to tell anybody else. And those are actually often our best stories to share. And 
Yeah, I resisted that for years, Fern. I resisted it for years. I was scared of it. I felt weak. That story made me feel weak, powerless, and not a man. And actually what I've learned for the last couple of weeks is actually the opposite of that. What I feared would happen with the book was judgment from other men. Like, why is he saying this? Why don't he can just write a funny book? Why is it? Why? He's, he's a successful guy. Why is he moaning? All that kind of stuff. And all I've had is these lovely emails from people. I've had over 600 emails from people in five weeks. Not just unlike the book, but they're actually sharing their stories. Like, mm. I think it's, I think it surprises people when they hear that people like you and I have actually, um, have actually struggled. They're like, oh, for some reason they think that because we can talk in front of a camera or, yeah. or a microphone, which to me feels like a real low level of basic skills. <laughs> yeah. Somehow you've got it all sorted out. You're really yeah. funny because whenever they see us, I guess for that slim sliver of the day. We do appear to have you know, you got have it to. all going on. Yeah. And I think actually reminding people like, no, 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 I, I, I guess what? The, I, yeah, I, I had it. Let me tell you this story. This isn't a funny one. There might be jokes in it, but, I, you know, I had to go and see a therapist. I couldn't do the radio show all of a sudden. I thought I was going mad. And I think what hopefully I've tried to do and what you're trying to do is we're trying to normalise all these emotions. Well, they're so prevalent, aren't they? Like, that's the thing with panic attacks. Yeah. You feel like... In the moment, I mean, I certainly, I can't speak for you, but I've in those moments thought, like, you know, I, I was on the cusp of one last night. There was a pneumatic drill outside the the house at like 10.30 at night and anything to do with sleep, I'm triggered. And in those moments, I think, what's wrong with me? Why can't I just like normal people just go to sleep without having this mm. huge panic attack? And But they are very common. And, you know, I know the roots of mine. I know the roots of the depressive episodes, but I also acutely know the, the roots of the, of the panic. And I wonder for you if you know or if you're even willing to share what what you think that was founded in, what what the catalyst was for you to have that kind of out-of-the-blue experience of having these, you know, very frequent panic attacks at work. Yeah, it was interesting, actually, Fern, because um, I've been doing live stuff for years, like, you know, all my life, stand-up, TV, radio, never really... That was the area of life I didn't have anxiety and fear in that little pocket, which is really nice. Suddenly that actually... Live work for me has always been where actually I felt in control and being out of control. That's where I really came alive and I felt, oh, well, this, I know all this, even though it was, it was live and unpredictable. And I love that. I flourished in it. The, the other areas of life where I actually found it harder sometimes. So to suddenly have fear around that, to me, it felt like, oh, this is really cruel. You know, why can't it be about going to the supermarket, something which isn't going to impact yeah. my life massively, rather my livelihood. And also my joy, you know, what I, it's my why, it's why I get out of bed in the morning. It gives me meaning. I'm very, very lucky to have it. And so, but actually, if I'm really honest, they didn't just come out of nowhere. It felt like that at the time, that I, but actually, I think for a couple of years, there have been kind of these rumblings there. And if I'm really honest, I think it first showed up when I was a teenager. And I didn't know what that was then. I was a teenager in the 80s. You know, words like sen sensitive person, you know, anxiety. That hadn't been invented no. then. And as a teenage boy, it was all like, well, give me two litres of Merry Down cider with my friends. That That's that's a coping mechanism. Yeah. Which you can't do on breakfast radio. Like, oh, <laughs> yes, yes, this this... This is, I feel superhuman now having this nice alcohol. And then after a while, you realize actually that, that isn't, that isn't going to help. Mm. You know, that isn't going to help at all. And it took me a long time to realize that. So I think actually what I'm doing is numbing, numbing down, dumbing down. And I think all of us do that in different ways. It's hard to be human, isn't it? You know, no one tells us as a kid. I remember being a, teen being a teenager. Were you like this film? I couldn't wait to grow up. 
I couldn't yeah, wait to I grow wanted up. To, I, I found a diary, it wasn't a diary, maybe like a piece I'd written for school when I was about 10. And one of the, one of the sentences sort of alluded to the fact that I couldn't believe that adults you know, had agency over my life and I couldn't wait to do what I wanted to do. And now, of course, I'm an adult. I'm like, I wish I was a kid again. It's so hard. Yes, it's really hard. It's so hard. You know, and I guess your parents can't go, hey, listen, one, no. you know, just one day out of the blue going, by the way, it's it's not what you think it's going to be. It's actually really hard. No. Because actually suddenly you become an adult and go, why didn't anyone warn me? Why didn't they get me ready for this? It's really, and also, you start, you start, there's one point where you realise as an adult, so much of it is admin. It's just admin. It's just every day. It's just like to-do list, isn't it? Yeah. And it becomes this, you lose sense of actually the joy and you have to rediscover that. That's that's part of our responsibility as an adult is to find these little pockets of joy. But, but you anyway, did. Anyway, the point to you answer your question was, I, yeah. I think once I got into my mid-40s, I started to really, anxiety started to show up again. And I think I did my best to make more stuff. I'll go and do a stand-up show. I'll go and tour with that. I'll do a podcast. I'll, I'll make something else. I didn't realize at the time I told myself that's because of what I had to do. Hustle. Actually, what I was trying to do was just avoid um, listening to that part of me that was trying to get my attention that said, was saying, that I, I'm not happy. I'm scared. This is one of my main tactics, Christian, is distracting myself relentlessly. And I could see myself doing it last week. I was... I had a little opportunity to relax and the kids had broken up from school and we went to the seaside in the UK and I just had this huge discomfort and I I couldn't sit still. I couldn't sit in it. And it was, and it's what you've described in the book through going to therapy for the first time is your inner bully, that sort of acerbic voice Mm. that's going, you can't rest, you mustn't, you don't deserve it. Other people are working right now or whatever your narrative is. And I still constantly distract myself because there's bits that I'm still, I still haven't dealt with it. I do therapy all the time, but I still, there's always something to unpick. There's always something to have a look at. But during that process for you, when you, you met, as you call him, the man in the shed, you were going to see your, your new therapist and you were talking about life. You had this sort of incremental thought, but then there was this snap moment where you decided that Australia was the answer. What was the feeling behind that? Was that just the sort of the romantic notion of moving away could rid you of all of the stuff you're worrying about? No, not at all. No, a lot of people ask me that. And I I really hope that the book makes it clear that actually it wasn't running away because actually... So the book says, isn't it, John Cabot Singh, wherever you are, there you are. Oh, it, just all, it would have found me here. And it still did find me here. Um, no, it was, I'll tell you what it was, was once I started to understand a bit more about what was going on with the panic attacks, and then I found it very hard because the therapist said to me, you need to make a friend with them. And I was like, what? Well, I, I need you to get rid of them. And he went, you know, where? And I kept t- t- referring to it as an it. I want it to go away. I want it to stop happening. He said, but it's in you. If you could show me where it was in you, I'd be the richest man in the world. I'll cut it out. You know, but where, where is it? You're, it's you. It's your relationship with that part of you that is struggling. He said, when you make a friend of it, that's when you'll get to a better place. And it took me a long time to get to that, to understand being kinder to myself. And then once I had done that, I started then to realize what had actually been going on in my life. How was I really feeling? Because I'm underneath fear and anxiety. There's something else under it. And the real thing was that for a couple of years, I'd been really just sleepwalking in life. I'd lost my mojo. I'd made my life a bit too small. And so my wife, when we were talking about it, and what suited us, a place out in Surrey, 
a nice little town to bring the kids up that was great to raise kids suddenly felt utterly horrifying and almost claustrophobic and it was kind of like we were starting to realize have all the exciting things in life happened now are we now just waiting for the kids to go to university and then we're alone and miserable and we just look back on our lives and you're in the second half of life and you're just hanging on. You're just hanging on. And so we both realised that we'd always loved Australia. And I'd got to know quite a few Australian DJs over the years. And it was then we started, could that be a thing? Could we start a new life? Could we move to Australia? We're in our mid-40s now or never. Could I get a job in radio out there? And so it started with, I think it was saying to ourselves that actually we want more adventure in our lives for ourselves and our kids. That's what it was. And when you're saying that, I don't think it was a, like um, a distraction. It was more about I'd woken up the fire in my soul again that actually I needed a new, a new challenge, a new mission. I didn't realize until I got here what I, what I was really missing. It wasn't just a new challenge. It wasn't just something new to build. I thought it was. And, and then when I got here, quite a few things happened when I realized, ah, oh, that, isn't, that isn't what I need. It's a different thing that's trying to come forward in me now. And the book's part of that. That's all been the last three years. So, yeah, it wasn't to hide or get away, but uh, it was more about it was more about something that I wanted for myself and my soul instead of my wife. Yeah, it's, that's, it's so exciting to sort of think that life can be like that. And I think we often forget, don't we? We, get, we reach for comfort and we think that's yeah. the goal or a feeling of safety. I often crave this feeling of, I, maybe next week I'll just feel like I've got it all sorted and I'll yeah. feel safe. And of course, yeah. you never get to that place. No. You're constantly, you know, ticking off more things on the list to get yourself to that place. And and often it is throwing yourself into something completely new or scary, which sort of sidelines all of that because you've got this fire in your belly that you've just spoken of and you feel like you've got that purpose. And, and also it, life's exciting again. And and I know that feeling very well. And, it, and it's, you know, I feel very lucky in a sense that I've sometimes got that feeling of, you know what, um, I've made a nice life for me and the family and that's truly lucky. But yeah. but there's a fine line between then just sort of going through the motions rather than pushing yourself and challenging yourself. And, and you did that to the extreme, you know, not only moving your teenage daughters and your wife to the other side of the globe, but also you know, picking up a whole new audience. And and as you write in the book, your your first email to the show said, fuck off home, yeah. which is like... They hate me for... Wow. They, 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 you know, and you're very honest about this and open yeah. about this. And, and I'm fascinated about your coping mechanisms because there's no way I could have dealt with that. Absolutely I think, no... You know you, I couldn't have dealt with it. You don't know that, Fern, all right? I you couldn't have... Know. No, you nope. don't know because we don't Honestly, know. Honestly, Christian, we always, there's no very... way... <laughs> I couldn't have. I, 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 I feel like I'm past that bit. And, you know, you talk about in your early days of your career, you were fueled by that. Yeah. If people dismissed you or, yeah. or people wrote you off straight away, you were fueled by And I used to be like that. Yeah. But I'm not that resilient anymore. And I don't know if that's due well, to no, age I think or that's experience, actually more but I'm not. Because actually, you know, in our younger years, maybe we need a bit of that. You want to prove something wrong. Mm. There's that energy. And actually use the right way, channel the right way. That's that's a fuel, isn't it, to get you somewhere in a better place? Yeah. Okay. And then all of a sudden, it's it's not it doesn't you don't need it anymore. It's unhealthy. It's like anything that's a strength can also become a weakness if you don't balance it out, and that can go too far to different kind of behaviours. And so, when I came here, I naively thought, like you know, you watch those TV shows, Escape to the Sun. I just thought, <laughs> are they going to love me? 
<laughs> Everyone loves a quirky Englishman who loves who loves who loves tea, <laughs> and they, I mean, they really hated me. Like I've never experienced that kind of hate in my life, and it was like, oh, oh okay, Maybe yeah, this was a mistake, you know. And but but you stayed, you stuck at it. How well, did we'd you sold do that? Up, we'd sold sake. up our house that we had for ten years. What well, we'd done? Oh, I there gone were back. no escape routes. There was no it. people who kept saying, "What's Plan B?" I went, "There's no Plan B." You know, I don't just walk back into my old radio show. It's hard to get shows like that. No, just, I'm going to have to give this a go for a couple of years. I can't just quit. You know, my kids have let, we've ripped them out of their schooling and stuff like that. That's not an option. You know, and there are many times when I felt really guilty when I saw my daughter struggling, my wife struggling with feeling homesick and missing her mum and all her friends. You know, and I'm thinking, no one actually wants me here. Why did I drag? Why have I done this? Why couldn't I just keep my shit together? Why is it by Harley Davidson have a, a healthier midlife crisis? But then <laughs> going through that and actually then growing through it and what I learned through it has changed my life more than just moving to Australia. It wasn't really about... Yeah, but you didn't know you were... Like, you know, at the end of the book, you it's beautiful. You know, you've got all these amazing lessons that you've learned and you have this true understanding of all these things that you couldn't have without going through this. Mm. But at the time, you don't know no. that. You don't know that anyone's going to... You know, you've now got the number one breakfast show. You didn't know that was going to oh, happen. God, you no. had no clue that the listeners would fall in love with you and understand you and you would have this lovely meeting of hearts. And, you know, you, you stuck with that sort of bombardment of abuse from people for a long time and I and I wonder did it make you have more acceptance of yourself in the truest sense without outside validation out of necessity because that's something that we don't we're not forced into looking at in everyday life because we all want to be liked we all want to be accepted it's you know it's ingrained in us our ancestors you know relied on it to be part of a tribe yeah and we still carry that as a bit of a hangover we want mm. people to like us you know and it yeah we, don't we fear being that, exiled from our own we tribe fear, don't we we fear being exiled mm. we fear being well at the moment everyone feels that sort of like cancellation of your life and your views and who you are and because you had to deal with that in a really acute sense and you can almost quantify it because you're seeing numbers of people and texts whatever was that a bit of a catalyst for you to look at yourself and go I have to have acceptance of myself because I'm not going to get it from the outside world at the moment a great question I never thought of that and um yeah I guess I did because I certainly wasn't getting it from the ratings all those normal kind of traditional things and so yes I guess I did have to dig deep into an inner sense of yeah I guess resolve and self-acceptance which is you know I still I still struggle with it at times when my book came out I just want my to my dad to like it well sorry that's a that's a that's a sneaky way of saying it. I wanted my dad to like me you know I'm 48 mm. and I'm still like daddy you know, start coming out with a painting, you know, a painting from school. <laughs> and it's a pasta shit version of him with like eight <laughs> heads. And he's going, oh, it's lovely. You know, he was like, Daddy, I've done a painting in the book <laughs> all about feelings <laughs> and vulnerability. Mm. And I sent it to my dad, obviously, from Australia to England. And I remember he sent me an email. He said, I've read the book. There's four spelling mistakes in it. And that was oh. it. Oh, I can laugh about it now. I actually, I actually, I actually got a little bit tearful. I, I, I know go, that oh, feeling. What happened to that self-validation? <laughs> yeah, 
But we still, I think all of us still carry that from childhood. That's that we ridiculous. Want yeah. Our parents that to say, now. you're doing all right. You yeah. know, we don't ever get over it, I don't think. We still want our parents to go, you're look doing look life. Look at Sir Richard okay. Branson, Jeff Bezos. They're still trying to make their dad proud going up there to the edge <laughs> of know, space. I know, going to space. I know. You've done enough. Please it's like okay. Dad's really proud of you. You're a billionaire. Well done. Chill yeah, out. Yeah, I think it's a driving force behind lots of our actions if we really care to admit it. And mm. it's... And it's a strong one. It's a real strong one. It's funny, one. isn't it? I, I didn't think, did you know, yeah. an adult, I thought, well, I'll be over that now. You know, I don't need mum and dad to val- validate me. You know, I'm an adult. I've got evidence that I've done all right in my life. You know, I'm not I'm not out on the streets, you know, barking at the moon and stuff like that. But you're still going, hey, what do you think of the book? <laughs> yeah. I wonder if it's just because we all feel, you know, especially in the modern world where we are living through such wildness at the moment and, and there is again an acute sense of uncertainty it's not just like regular life where there's always uncertainty there's like promoted uncertainty and because we're all feeling like we're not sure where we're going and if we're getting it right we yeah. just want someone to tell us you're doing okay yeah we do we all want that don't we? we we're all looking for a yeah. leader of some sort because actually our elected leaders without getting too much into the political because i'm not smart enough to sort of understand that but the elected leaders we have in the world we've all finally there's been plenty of evidence for decades that they're not all that good. Well, yes. now we've really realised, oh, my God, they're, you know, they're really scared little boys behaving really yep. badly. I mean, look at Boris really and Dominic badly. Cummings and, you know, it's just Matt unbelievable. Hancock. And the royal family and I know. all this stuff around us, these power structures globally. This isn't just Britain as well. It's here in Australia and America, all around us. It's all been like the game that we thought, if you played this, you, you, you'll be all right. You'll be looked after. You're safe. Now we're realising, oh, well, that, that isn't true. So hang on a minute. What do I do? How, how do I stay sane in this? What a time collectively. I thought 9-11, that was something like, okay, well, I know what it's a bit like to be in a kind of collective thing with people. But now... You know, with COVID, it's like we're really, really in something where you can really feel this deeper unsettling, even in people that I always thought as very strong and sort of secure in their yeah. role in the capitalist society, now actually coming undone because it's undone all of us, are going, oh, oh I'm not so sure anymore. There's no, the certainties that we had, they, they don't really, they're not certainties anymore. It's scary. No, and this is where, and this is something you talk a lot about in the book, you know, you've really got to channel your own uh, gut instinct and, and trust in the voice within mm. that you know is is true, benevolent, coming from a place that, you know, is going to stand you in good stead and, and do the right thing. And, and you you really had to harness that and trust your own instinct. And I wonder if maybe that just takes some practice because I think often we just find the world too noisy. I don't know what I believe anymore. I don't know what I think. I don't know what to do. Like how often do I say in my life to my husband, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. But I know deep down, if I really sat with it, I would have my own idea that wasn't informed by the exterior noise. I would have an idea that felt right to me. And you really had to do that because you had on a daily basis, people saying, please go home. We don't want you here. But your gut said, stay. Yeah, it said stay and it said I still believed, I, I really believed that I was building something different. And I didn't quite know at the time what that was, but I just had an instinct that this is where I'm meant to be and I think this is something different. This is what I've always wanted, really. And 
you have an audience that grows with you and it's a great place to be. I've been blessed with that. But then what you don't have to do is ever build something from scratch again, where you're literally like a politician going out, literally shaking hands, kissing babies. And I had to do that here. And I found that really challenging, but also really exciting. It was really hard and really enlivening. And because it was all on this, I hadn't felt that tightrope act where and at times it was overwhelming, um, but at times it was also really exciting. It was both. You couldn't have one without the other. And in all that noise, you know, and radio here, the ratings are every five weeks. It's on TV on the news, right? So I kept seeing photos of my face at the bottom of a graph going down, and there were headlines like expensive British import, overseas import. And I was like, oh, my. Everywhere I went, people recognised my yeah. accent, and I only the English guy on the radio. And then they didn't say anything after that. They all knew. We all knew. I was tanking. And so it was It was, It was. was really frightening. And the title of the book, No One Listens to Your Dad's Show, came from something that a girl said, a 13-year-old girl said to my daughter, in the school playground, no one listens to your dad's radio show. She thought it was hilarious. I remember at the time going, I'm really near the edge now. I'm really near the edge of just quitting and going back. Yeah. I mean, being bullied at, in a school playground, there's... I can't, how much more can I take? Why did I put myself, why yeah. did I, I chose this? You know, and so, but going <laughs> through that, what an amazing experience for the kids, us as a family, me as someone on the radio, going through that kind of radical breaking apart and stripping down and something new coming out of that um, is, was, is, is an amazing experience. Incredibly, I, of, what, of what it's like to throw yourself away in some form and see what happens. Yeah, because we're all so bound to what our ego has designed yeah. as who we are. Like, I am Christian, I'm a DJ, this is what I mm. know, this is what I do, and we've created all of that, so we can dismantle yeah. it just as easily. And, you know, you give your old self some beautiful advice in the book, and you say, you know, you picture yourself having a panic attack before your radio show back in the UK, and you say, keep going, keep breaking apart, because sometimes we need to be broken open, which I thought was so beautiful. And 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 we don't let ourselves do that enough. We're constantly trying to stop ourselves from completely falling apart or hitting rock bottom. And I've, I've certainly hit rock bottom mm. once, and it was pretty extreme. And um, I, yeah. at that moment, felt like I had lost everything. And I, you know, like you, I left the radio show I'd been doing for a long time. Mm. Some of the other broadcasting work that I'd been doing to, you know, in a less dramatic way to you, but because geographically I was still in the same place, but I had to sort of start again. And as shit scary as that is, there is liberation in it because you're going, well, do I have to be the person that always does that? Or is this just a fear that I don't know who I am without it? And, you know, it's it's scary, but, and you don't have to do it in an extreme way. It could be in tiny pockets of your life. I think it's still worth just cracking little areas of life open to see if you really believe what you've built, I guess. Yeah, I think in life, you know, I think the first half of my life was built up about um, identity, trying to, you know, what am I here to do and, get, and trying to get on with it. And then the second half of your life, you start to realize, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't, what, what is that? It's like, it's, it's like you're hanging on to something then, aren't you? And it's really fading like sand. You're going, oh my God, it's, there's nothing to it. I thought if I, if I won awards, got ratings, I'd feel better. You get all of that. And he was, I still feel the same. What is, yeah. and then he was actually, it's not about that anymore. It's actually about you giving back. It's about you doing something that's more than yourself and of being of service. I, I used to read stuff like that and think what a load of wank. 
I just <laughs> want a pay rise. I want ratings. I better get another award this year because I know this is the best radio show in the country. I got all of that. <laughs> Nothing changed. I, I get these awards and I was like, well, I can't put this in me and feel this lack in me. I can't. What do yeah. I do with this bloody thing? I'm still the same mess. It didn't, damn you. It hasn't, it hasn't worked. I've been shortchanged. Yeah. And then actually when I did come here and various things started to happen and I realised, I thought it was all about being the funniest person on the radio. It's actually quite exhausting. If you met someone out in a restaurant or someone introduced you to someone new and all they were trying to do is make you laugh, you go, dude, Draining. what do you really yeah, think? Chill out. You know, what, who, who, <laughs> stop the noise. It's okay. And actually I realised what actually the most important thing they needed from me and I needed from me was actually vulnerability and the ability to talk about. But I think because, I think when you've really tasted despair, however it is in your life, you really have forever, you'll have empathy. You hear yeah. someone else, you'll read about someone else. You know, you don't even know. You know, oh, I know what that's like. I don't know their story, but I know what that's like to really taste despair. So you can talk about it when you meet someone else. Or So when listeners were emailing, and I've always read all my emails on that, and I could talk on the radio, I found that I could talk to them on the radio about stuff that we think is difficult and people don't talk about on the radio, especially not at breakfast time. I was like, oh, well, I know this area. And then I realized, oh, this is what's actually needed from me now. And that's not every day, but when I can, being able to not shy away from that and put words, the things that I built up for 20 odd years of live work, I can put words to that experience and try and normalize it somehow. That's what they wanted from me. I came in thinking it was all about being really funny and I'm going to be undeniable with my funniness. You know, I've come from England. I've gone up against Moyles and Evans. I'll show you Australia. And then they, they didn't want that from me, actually. They wanted me to be a human. And actually, that's what I needed from me. Mm. And so it's been, a, it's been a really interesting sort of learning, le yeah, a journey, actually. And that's a bit of an overused cliche these days. But our life should be a journey. Yeah, We should see ourselves as work in progress. And then it starts us thinking that we're finite. Because finite and rigid breakable if we was just to see yourself as work in progress that you still figure it out that's okay it's a life's work yeah because it's not linear is mm. it either we're not like on this ascent to somewhere yeah. where we get like a sticker at the end like you did it yay <laughs> like the, the, the highest level just... of donkey kong you won <laughs> yeah, exactly drops down i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Um. There's something in the book that, again, I, I really appreciated you talking about, and I think it will really um, speak to a lot of people, and that's around male friendship, because, you know, you rightly say, and it, and it might sound like a generalisation, but it's because it's based in fact that in the situation you're in where you've moved to a new country, you know, your daughters are in the, in a social scene at school, they can make new friends and they can talk to people every day. Your wife, as a female, is out in book clubs making new friends and and getting to a deep level of conversation with those people quite quickly. Whereas you found that much trickier because there's less space for men to do that. And, and I found this one particular story really heartbreaking where 
you had started these man walks with a with a, a new friend on the weekends and you would both really enjoy them and then that unfortunately broke down can you can you talk to us about that yeah i mean it's interesting fern right because um every single woman who's read the book they all talk about the male friendships because i don't think they really realized yeah oh yeah of course i sit in my own partner you know how he's barely got enough time to go out with his friends and it's hard to make friends especially when you get to your sort of late 30s and 40s it's like the friends you've got you don't have a lot of time to see them and you're adding kids you know you don't you just don't have a lot of time to hang out with your mates anymore and so making new friends it's almost like you're not hiring anymore i said i never thought what it would be like to make new friends when i got it i never even thought about that right and then suddenly it was like a couple of weeks into it when it was getting really hard and i was like oh, i'll just pick up a phone see who's around to go for a quick beer and i was like there's, there's no one oh yeah i've got no mates i've got no listeners and no mates and i was like <laughs> And this is a generalisation, but I find it to be true. Women make friends a bit easier. Mm. It does appear to me that the sisterhood is always looking out for each other. Mm. I mean that. I don't mean that flippantly. And it's wonderful. My wife would go and walk the dog, come up with two new phone numbers. Yeah. And I'm like, how do you do that? I was a chanter's woman, and then we're going to go meet for coffees. They're always recruiting the sisterhood. I said, how am I going to meet men? I remember my wife even saying, why don't you go and, you know, see if there's some apps. There are apps for that, but I'm not looking for that. You know, I just want someone to go hang out with. Yeah. And it was... People find it funny, and I find it funny now, but I had no friends. Yeah, it's sad. So anyway, I got into a situation where I started to find... I had a guy... And he's like an alpha and I'm not really an alpha. And sometimes I'm, a bit, I'm not quite sure around alphas. And he'd been filling me out for a while. Like, who is this English guy and all that? And I just got a text from him one day, literally out of the blue. I hadn't heard him and I'd seen him in two months. He was saying, fancy going for a man walk, 5Ks. And even the language that he called it, not let's just go for a walk. Women would find it quite comfortable. Well, let you just go for a woman walk. Yeah, woman walk. You know, it's a fact he put man walking yeah. there. Like that made it safe in their vulnerability. We're walking, but look, it's men. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's different walking. Men going for a walk. Yeah. And 5Ks, it's not a stroll. It's five. Other it's people might run this. Yeah, We're yeah, simply yeah. going to walk it. And so this went on for quite a few Saturdays. And it was actually really nice. We would just talk and walk for about two hours. And we would open up about our lives. And because there's no direct eye contact, men it's can easier. open up a bit more. Because yeah. your eyes are looking at the sea and over there. So you're not quite, it's not quite as, as confrontational away sometimes. And men do need to feel a bit safer in vulnerability to begin with. We get spooked very easily, you know. And so I remember we both of our daughters are friends. And we said, hey, look, next Saturday, let's bring out our daughters. Let's be a really, really nice father-daughter thing. And then... They came out, and I think they they start. They we went for coffee afterwards, and they were taking the Mickey out of us, going, "Oh, my dad gets so stressed if he's late for man walk, and oh, my dad's got his favourite cap he always wears for man walk." Both of us felt really exposed, and I could I could just see both of us didn't know what to say. There were no jokes, and it all just shrunk away. It was the end of man walk fun. We never walked. I hate that. I hate that because I know, but but it's because of the patriarchy that this exists, that there's no space for men to go. I really love our walks. I really, because a woman would say that. It mattered to me. Yeah, this is exactly. It was actually something really precious. I really looked forward to it. And it was kind of like a, a kind of like a therapeutic thing as well. And I always felt better afterwards. I know big John did as well. And that was the end of it. We, we both felt awkward at being exposed to being done, 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 sensitive, and actually that, yeah, we've got feelings, this really means something to me, you mean something to me. We didn't know what to do in that 
in that space, isn't it sad? It is sad it's because fragile. it's yeah, but it's it's all quite new that that you know in the last couple of generations, maybe only ours, we've really started talking about not only how the patriarchy, and we talked about this with Catelyn Moran on the podcast recently, not how... Yeah, I love that it's ju- oh, Yeah, it's not just about how, you know, it's it's screwing over women worldwide, but it's affecting men, and, and that's a prime example that you, you can't say to someone, you know, even going back to making new friends, like, hey, do you fancy a coffee soon? You know, women would absolutely feel comfortable doing that if it was the right moment and the right time. But I think for men that feels awkward or or like, I don't know, there's something strange about it. Whereas it's a yeah, beautiful yeah, it. meeting it's, of minds. Yeah, what's wrong with saying, hey, you know, let's hang out. But I remember trying that. You know, I say about it in the book, there's a story about how my wife and I, in the first six months, were in the back of an Uber together. And I was getting on really well with this guy. He was Canadian. He'd only moved here about seven years ago. And we were really bonding. He was talking about British comedy that he loves. My wife texted me from next to me in the car, said, get his phone number. And I said, we're going, I can't do that. That's really odd. He's an Uber driver, right? I can't say, hey, let's go out on like a mandate. And then, you know, my wife said, but you don't have any friends. You know, I was like, I know. Anyway, she gets out ahead of me. She does that look like, ask him for his number. So I do, right? It's like a big leap for me. And I go, I really enjoy chat. We should, you know, we should meet up for a beer or something. And he looked at me like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, and I felt (laughs) so small. We swapped numbers and I waited about four or five hours. I didn't want to appear too keen. And then um, I sent him a text going, hey, you know, really enjoyed chatting to you earlier. Let's, you know, let me know when it's good to meet up for a beer. Two years later, Fern, he still hasn't replied. Oh, it breaks that was my another heart. Moment. It breaks, another moment. It's worse than dating. It's worse than dating. It's worse than dating. It's actually worse. It's more, it's more crushing than dating. It is. It is. And we really need to give, you know, men more space to be able to, well, like you've talked about already, show their vulnerability and talk openly and admit about, you know, your feelings and emotions without shame or it being, you know, an odd thing to do. I, that's why I found that bit of the book so, so important. And also, you know, I'm really interested in this on a personal note because I, I, I'm still dealing with anxiety. My panic attacks are way less than they were at one point, And that's because I... I'm, yeah been lucky enough to do quite a lot of therapy which I'm very grateful for because that's obviously not the case with lots of people out there which is something that we need systemic change with but god that's a huge thing to tackle and we can keep talking about it and hopefully there'll be change down the line but you you talk about in the book how you now at this point can see the gift that anxiety gave you or maybe there are multiple gifts things that this anxiety has has given you in life can you talk to us about some of those yeah and um i can say this now because i'm like you they're always going to be part of my lives lives um my life panic attacks and anxiety you know um getting better i I guess now uh, the various breathing techniques are doing stuff like that i'm getting better at i guess stopping it before it really gets up to the big peaks that it had say seven or eight years ago i'm I'm better at there are early little warning signs but what i can say to anyone who is 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 experienced at the moment or any kind of anxiety is often there is something going on behind it all there is there always is and actually when you don't look the other way and you look towards them, you know, we often we want uh, like a hero. It's the same in fairy tales, isn't it? The hero to show up and save us, whether that's medication or alcohol or whatever it is. But actually when we can change the story and we become the hero of our own story, you only do that if you're, it's like, you know, there's all those great fairy tales about, you know, being lost in the forest 
and wanting someone to come and rescue you when you realize you've got to rescue yourself just to survive this. And then you become stronger through it. That actually, those stories, the reason why they've been around for cultures and generations and tribes, they're still happening every day. It's actually when you look towards what scares you in the shadows, you turn into an it. I see a lot of language around anxiety, like slay, conquer. That didn't work for me. Maybe some people need to embody that. Maybe it works for them. For me, it was about making a friend of it. When I was in, where is the dragon? There's no dragon. It's, it's literally in, you've made it into a dragon, you poor thing. It's that line in the Radiohead song. We do it to ourselves. And that's what's really sad. And it's true, isn't it? It, it is so much of it. It's the resistance. I can't. I'm not enough. It's bigger than me. And we lose how infinitesimally big we are and connected to something bigger how big is our heart you can show what it's like physically but in terms of the capacity you have to feel these big emotions sometimes you know as a parent you know this joyous unlimited love that isn't just about how size you, you, you the size of your heart physically it's about something bigger than you you know that you're part of and I, I find that really interesting that for me there was a gift in the anxiety and the panic attacks they they would always be part of my life but they won't they won't define me and I think that's a really important distinction as well, is that, you know, they've, they've actually informed me. They've given me empathy. They've made me a better dad. They've made me a better husband. They've made me have a better relationship with myself in terms of what I do for a living. It's also had a massive impact on that and how I am on the radio now. Um, but most importantly, just who I am as a person. You know, I think um, becoming a better human should always be where you start. And then that will have a impact on all your relations be that at work or at home often people think they need to become a better more functioning highly functioning you know swiss army nice at work mm. and then somehow that's going to make a better husband or a better partner um and it's like mm, no that those kind of attributes that feels like too macho to me that's too much in attainment conquering and stuff like that I, I don't think that's what's needed in the world right now i think actually what's needed right now is a bit more empathy and um, for us to realize that we're actually humans even your teammates are sometimes annoy you it's like how do you want to speak to them why don't you speak to them as humans you know rather than boss and an employee and the same when i chat to my kids they're 17 and almost 15 and sometimes i get frustrated like, they're not understanding i'm making a lot of sense here why aren't they getting it? it's like <laughs> God, you're just humans aren't you like i'm i'm 48 i'm still i'm still fucking up i'm still yeah. really not paying attention and reading the room i expect you at 14 and 17 to be smarter than me that's not fair you know mm. you know and so i forget so I just, they're humans like i'm human trying to figure it out and they're, they're they've only been here for such a few amount of years there's no point trying to use these big high fluent terms sometimes so yeah, it's made me a better person, Fern. It's changed you without your panic attacks. It's like a parallel oh, yeah. side and door scene, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah, interesting I, I think about this one quite a lot because I don't always have clarity as to how much I should be guided by the anxiety and panic. And hmm. I have found it debilitating at times. So, like, you know, yeah, an example might be I have challenged myself in healthy ways this year by getting myself back driving on motorways which I didn't do for four years because I physically couldn't do it and then I just got into the mental habit of thinking I can't because I will have a panic attack but rather than let that define how I moved about I, I challenged it you know with someone in the car with me well kept it safe whatever and that was really cool I'm, I'm still doing that now but then there are things where I have so little clarity so for instance 
and I haven't talked about this so much, but I was covering for Zoe Ball on the Radio 2 Breakfast yeah. Show and for about a year, but my panic attacks got so bad in the end that I wouldn't sleep at all the night before and I would take beta blockers yeah. and, and all sorts. If I was to find out that last minute she couldn't do the show tomorrow and I was told I had to cover, I, I would instantly physically start shaking. And much like you... I am full of joy when I'm doing a show like that. I find it, mm. it's never easy, but I find it fluid and I enjoy it and I understand yeah. the language, I understand how to make the show happen and I'm more than capable of doing it. And when I'm there, I'm fine. But the bit before is so horrendous for such a sustained amount of time that I had to step back because I was it was making me physically unwell. I was like, I actually can't put myself through this. And I often lose that distinction between how much like is this worth pushing myself to try again or is this just not the time and I need to be kinder to myself and take a step back and not distract myself I find that a very yeah, this fine is line really interesting yeah and what it is fun it's like it's interesting listening to you talk about that right and you talk about do I need to push myself you know they're quite sort of judgmental words aren't they they're almost mm. saying if I did this then I'd be stronger I'd be better actually the thing is you know with panic attacks a lot of it is is rehearsed future failure, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like you say, you're the same as me. When it, it's like, so doing the show, you're fine. You're in flow, you're yep. in joy, you're in your heart, right? It's an amazing place to be. Beforehand, you, you're already building up it going wrong. I can't cope. But that's actually not happening real time. Right. But actually in your mind and how your body responds to that, it actually is happening real time. So of course, actually, the protective part of you is going to go, on, well, don't do that. That's like a nightmare. It's trying to keep you safe. And actually, it isn't about pushing yourself. The only the only way you need to go towards anywhere be pushed towards is back towards your heart. And mm. the same thing that you can do when you're doing it, that's that's all just coming from being open to the fullness of of the experience. And you can do that. You can do it on the radio. You, it's just like, how do I keep that open to it all mm. and be loving to that scared part of me beforehand? Because it's yeah. not all of you, it's a part of you. And it, actually it, what it feels just is, too powerful in the moment. To, yeah, again, like I know it. intellectually, but you're turning I've, it into bigger than you. Yeah, it's yeah. It's in you. It's just a part of you that's scared mm. that actually still yet is trying to get, it's still trying to get, it's trying to tell you something. It needs something from you and it hasn't quite got it yet. Yeah. And it's acceptance really is what it normally is. And it's, we're very good at almost making a friend of those emotions that we think are, um, are likable by the world. I like these parts of me and a sensitive part of me and all that because the rest, everybody else likes that. But then there's a couple of shady ones that we don't, I don't like you. Don't ever come out. People won't like yeah. that part of you. And so the more you're like staying in the bloody shadows, the more that the noise they make and the more that's us still rattling around in that kind of hurt locker that you've pushed them down into the basement. They're rattling, yeah. they're kicking on the door going, please, it's horrible down here. Why yeah. can't I come up with all the other emotions and sit at the top table or also not even just emotions but versions of you because I know yeah. that version of myself that I try and keep away and it's the one yeah, that too. didn't finish my education and that missed out on like key parts of my childhood because I was working and I missed out on like all of these milestones that my friends you know took part in because I was working so much so I don't always feel fully formed in ways and I'm like no you stay down yeah. there because people are going to think you're thick and stupid and like you yeah. don't understand how the world works <clears throat> and I've sort of 
you know, cultivated this new version of myself, which is well read and researched and, you know, knows what's what. But there is the other version still in there because that's also me. I mean, do you, is, is yours more of an emotional thing you're putting in the locker or is it a, a previous version of yourself? No, I think it is. I was very, it's funny hearing you talk about, so you think you're thick. So that, that's what I feel. I felt for a long time like, you know, just a DJ. You're literally just mumbling in between the songs. You know, you're playing Nickelback. You know, that's <laughs> you break it down like that. Quite a lot of you tell the time out loud and then you play Nickelback. <laughs> you know, and it's got like, oh my God, you basically, there's no difference. I remember once taking my kids to see a clown at the circus and I was looking at him, judging him. And I said to the kids, imagine doing that for a job. You're a grown up, you're a clown. And one of them said, well, that's what you are. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Oh, oh God! That's amazing. You're him without the big red nose. That night, right? Oh. And I remember doing the radio show, catching my reflection. I'm sure I saw a clown looking back at you. <laughs> oh my God! It's terrifying. I know. I know that. I know that feeling so well. And it's I carry and, you know, it around with me everywhere. Yeah. It's that, I think it's a, everyone has that. You're an everyone has it. We we think we look at certain people and think, God, you know whether they went to an amazing university or they're really highly skilled in one area and we think they are so sorted and, and, I, and I'm sort of inferior to their amazingness. But they've got a thing. They've absolutely they got a thing. They will have. And I bet deep down inside, everyone's still scared, aren't you? I think yeah. there's a still a big part of every single grown-up that is still that teenage part of them where they yeah. don't quite know how to do it all and they're struggling. You're in this kind of adult costume if you want, but deep down inside, there's still that teenage part of you. It doesn't quite know where you fit into the world. And maybe yeah. that's a good thing to still have in the healthy way, that kind of, I don't know. It's just, I yeah. think it's fine as long as you don't abandon that version of yourself, which I have truly tried to do. And just sort of, <clears throat> even though unfortunately you can happily Google and YouTube me on kids TV, I've tried to bury her. Whereas, you know, certainly again, mm. through therapy, I've been, really taught to try and have you know show her kindness and go it's okay it doesn't matter that you don't know everything or it doesn't you know nobody does it but it doesn't matter that you know that that, that you exist and that you've made mistakes or whatever and and showing some kindness i think is you know dealing with our past is a big one i think a lot of people listening to this will be probably nodding along because we've all got one we've all got a past and we've all got regrettable incidents or seemingly you know supposed mistakes and we've got a it's acceptance isn't it yeah, and also though, Fern, you're, you're. I think also. Hopefully, you'll get to a place one day. I'm sure you still do. Where you can also look back on that fern cotton, and it's like a snake shedding skin, right? We should have these various versions of ourselves. What's more yeah. boring than being fully formed at what nineteen? Then what? I, you know, I want to be able to look back and go, oh my, I thought I knew it all then. Yeah. What a dick. Because then actually <laughs> yeah. you feel like, well, here's where I am now. Thank God I'm not. But that's all I knew then. That was what awareness felt like for me. Was now I'm like, I should know more. We're older. We've experienced more. We've been humbled a bit by life. You've really tasted what it's like when you don't get what you think you deserve and what it's like to really feel humiliated, actually, overlooked mm. for something, you know, mm. and then suddenly feel a bit lost in your own life in your 40s, you know, and who you are as a parent and are you a good enough parent? And I think that's all that's all really interesting and healthy. And you look back on your uh, life's work and actually you, you you can sort of join dots, can't you? Yeah. And all the, 
it is hard. I don't know what it's like to try and make it as a, a female presenter, right? but it, I know it's hard, mm. like really hard. And yeah. you you actually managed to make it. And all those skills you learned through years and years and thousands of hours of live work, how to talk, how to talk better, how to get it sharp, how to it better. Those skills now help you build up this new tribe, this new thing you're doing. And that, what you're doing is helping people. But if you hadn't done all those hours, you're not as good as you are now at doing it. You can't have yeah. one without the other. They're all part of you. No, certainly. And, uh, you know, and much like the work that you're doing now on the radio where you've combined having an number one radio show, but also meeting people daily, heart to heart. You know, that's not only the skills you've learned, but it's the life experience teamed with that. Yes. that's Making it incredibly special, not only for your listeners, but also for you and your own heart and head and for you to carry on feeling fired up and excited about what you're doing and and it's brilliant. And as I said at the start of this, I, you know, I loved reading your book. I, I think there's Thank some you, that really, so much. you know, obviously it's funny, but there's some really poignant moments in there that I think um, really need to be talked about, especially when it comes to male mental health and, and, and you know, the nuances of, of male friendship and, and meeting other men. I, I think it's really important work and I, I loved reading it. So thank you so much for writing it. And it's, it's been a joy talking to you today. So thank you, Christian. I've loved it, fun. Absolutely loved it. I've got so much from it. It's, um, it's lifted me up um, having this little chat. So thank you. Well, Christian, thank you. What a brilliant example of what resilience looks like. I loved loved talking to Christian thank you so much for your time mate he's brilliant and I mean that brilliant book I loved reading it no one listens to your dad's show is out right now I'll be talking to another completely iconic radio DJ in a few weeks time so make sure you don't miss that or any other upcoming episodes of Happy Place by following the podcast on your app of choice I'll be back next week, but until then, another massive thank you to Christian, to the producer of this podcast, Anushka Tate, who I love at Rethink Audio, and to you, yes, you, listening on your headphones or in your car or wherever you are right now. Thank you for spending time with us today. I massively appreciate it, as always. I'm sending you so much love from my heart to yours, and I'll see you soon. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of Real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.